Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rusty Quill presents... Mick Dillinger was supposedly shipped to a nuthouse out of state after he came back from the timbers. But Avery didn't believe that. He had it on good authority that Mick's dad took a supervisor position at the paper mill in Augensburg, and that was the reason for his sudden disappearance. Still, that didn't explain why Maggie Upton was so weird. Some say she was just born that way, but Bud Atkins had been her next-door neighbor since kindergarten, and he said she didn't start acting wacky until someone found her out in the timbers one day, screaming. Jerry Gondek was a whole other story. He'd been in the hospital for months and no one knew why. The Minzer sisters said they dared him to stay overnight in the timbers the day before he was hospitalized, but Tony Spitzer claimed Jerry's dad was a mean drunk that had a habit of using him as a punching bag when he was on the juice. Both could be true, Avery supposed. There were a hundred stories out there about the timbers, half of them probably bullshit. But then again, whenever he'd ask his parents about it, they would become suspiciously nervous 
and tell him to stay away from the place. He knew from his friends that their parents were much the same, except Jody's mom. She would suddenly laugh hysterically at its mention and then, just as abruptly, continue on with what she was doing as if you never asked the question in the first place. But Mrs. McDermott had always been kind of crazy, ever since her husband disappeared, so no one put much stock in what she said, especially Jody. Avery continued to push his bike up the steep dirt road, sweating and trudging up the hill like he did every Friday after school. Ethan, Jason, and Jody were probably already there waiting for him. They were definitely going to give him shit for taking so long. There was no rush. It was just the kind of ribbing he came to expect from his friends. Not that he would have spared them the same if the situation was reversed. Like most 13-year-old boys, he took pride in his ability to bust balls. It was a skill he was particularly good at, one that, on several occasions, saved him from the lower rungs of the social ladder at school. As Avery reached the top of the hill, he could see Jason and Ethan taking refuge beneath the sprawl of a sweeping elm tree. They were sitting on their bikes, heads down on the handlebars, beaten by the heat. The sun's angst made Ethan's sandy long hair look stringy and wet, like he hadn't bathed in a month. Jason was a bit better off, although the pits and back of his shirt were soaked through with sweat. The two sat there, unmoving, until the sound of Avery's tires rubbing against the pavement irked them awake. Hey, look at there. Atwater decided to grace us with his presence. Ethan yelled, fighting through his heat-induced malaise. Avery just smirked and showed him his middle finger, a gesture that had practically become a second greeting for the boys. Seriously, Avery, why the hell do you go all the way out Patter Street? It's easier just to cut through Holcomb and go down Mayberry. That way you don't have to hike up a fucking mountain. Jason offered, feigning to be helpful. I don't know, this is just the way I've always gone. Avery lied. The real reason he took the harder route was because Susie Baylor lived on the corner of Maine and Hatter, right down the street from school. He had a crush on her since the first grade. He always fantasized he would ride by her place at just the right moment, when she dropped her books or her bike got a flat tire, and he would come to her rescue. Or, at least, have a reason to talk to her. Deep down, he knew such flights of fancy weren't realistic but they gave him hope and kept the stomach butterflies fluttering. His friends knew he liked her, but they didn't know that he purposely went by her house every day. That was his little secret. Besides, he'd never hear the end of it if they knew. There was no tongue silver enough to get him out of that jam. Is Jody already home? Avery asked, looking around for his other friend. Yeah, she got sick of waiting for your ass and went ahead. You know how she is. Avery just shrugged his shoulders and grinned knowing not to take offense at the Grouch's absence. The three boys pedaled down Miller Ave, passing the usual wasteland of houses that lined the crumbling street. Avery was always nervous riding through this neighborhood. The people were as broken as the tumble-down homes they lived in. At night, the place was practically painted red and blue with police lights, the cops busting this junkie or that. His dad said drugs had hit the people of Mapleton hard, especially in the poorer districts. You could definitely see it. People walked around like zombies after the apocalypse, a zone-ordinated Armageddon. The homes themselves looked strung out, atrophied and leaning, like they had taken one too many pulls of heroin. The air even tasted funny, like cheap skunk weed and burning barrel ash. His parents didn't like him going through this part of town, and on multiple occasions had strictly forbidden him from doing so, but their sentiment had more reach than their oversight, so he conveniently ignored it. 
Eventually, the houses began to stand upright again, and the lawns took on that freshly cut smell. It always amazed Avery how quickly neighborhoods changed. It seemed so arbitrary. It reminded him of school, how a large group of people decide who's in and who's out, relegating the misfits to the more unfortunate circumstances. He supposed that was just the way the world worked, but it didn't make him feel any better about it. He often wondered when he might be suddenly shunned, when people might decide that he was no longer acceptable. It happened all the time with the popular kids. One day someone was cool and the next they're off sitting by themselves somewhere. That group was particularly cannibalistic though, and he couldn't help but think they were a shallower breed of person. The rich kids always seemed that way to him, depthless, papier-mâché people. The kids turned off Franklin and onto Malcolm Street, which harbored a handful of modest homes. They rode until they hit a small bungalow with a faded paint job, and then parked their bikes in its disheveled gravel driveway. Mrs. McDermott was out in the yard, pulling weeds from the blooming flower bed in front of the house's porch. She was pretty for an older woman, but Avery could tell stress over the years had whittled her down. Her long, blonde hair was wound into a braid, flyaways punctuating her scalp like tiny branches sticking out from a bird's nest. She was skinny, bordering on gaunt, with her arms much too small for the short sleeves that attempted to grip them. Her complexion was clear, except for a sprinkling of freckles, but foundation covered up most of them, along with the crow's feet clutching the bottom of her eyes. On the surface, she looked happy, content, but it was like looking at the smile of a mannequin, shallow and empty. He couldn't help but feel sad whenever he looked at her. She was like a teacup that had been broken over and over, never quite able to be whole again. Jody told him once she sometimes could hear her cry at night, when her mother thought she was asleep. It made him feel even worse for taking advantage of the woman. The kids always chose to hang out at Jody's because of the lack of parental oversight. Mrs. McDermott was all too often lost in her own world either meticulously cleaning the house or simply staring vacantly out her front bay window. She rarely checked on them to see what they were doing, let alone dictated what they could and couldn't do. Hey, you kids. How you doing today? Jody's in the backyard waiting for you, I think. Mrs. McDermott greeted, her voice saccharine as always. The three boys thanked the woman and then walked towards the backyard. Like the front of the house, the back was festooned with meticulously kept florals, roses, lilies, petunias all hemmed in by small walls of gray brick. A scattering of lawn ornaments and bric-a-brac punctuated the garden, and a new layer of mulch seemed to have been laid down. It was all such a fastidiously kept mask, and Avery often wondered how long Mrs. McDermott could keep it up before it all started to crumble. Behind it all was the small screened-in porch where he could see the outline of Jody sitting on the orange cushioned swing. She was wearing her favorite death metal t-shirt, the one with the bloody teeth on it and a frayed pair of jean shorts. Her black curly hair was put back in a ponytail, which made her porcelain white skin pop against the dark brown wood behind her. She had the same dim freckles her mother had, except they weren't interrupted by any kind of makeup. Jody wouldn't be caught dead wearing the stuff. Regardless, she was pretty, and Avery knew a good deal of the boys at school liked her. Not that she returned the sentiment. In fact, it was rare to hear Jody say anything nice. She had the personality of an old curmudgeon, it was part of the reason he liked her so much. Took you guys long enough. Let me guess, Avery scaled Mount Kilimanjaro again. Jody asked, already knowing the answer. Yeah, of course he did. 
Gee, I wonder why. Avery always suspected Jody knew his secret. She was clever that way. But this was the first time she had made her awareness of it explicit. There was a tinge of jealousy in those cobalt eyes of hers. It wasn't the first time he'd seen it. She had stabbed him with those icy blue daggers before, whenever the topic of Susie came up. He wondered how long she had liked him. Was it a recent development? Or had she liked him from the beginning, since they shared a blanket during nap time in kindergarten? The feeling wasn't unreciprocated. Avery often felt strange liking two girls at the same time. It made him feel dirty, like he was somehow wronging one of them by liking the other. To Avery, Susie was pure, pristine, new fallen snow on a sprawling pasture. Everything about her, from the way she dressed to the smirk that overcame her face right before she laughed, struck him as perfect, innocent. Jody, on the other hand, had been sullied by the world, made hard by its unwavering cruelties. Pieces of her were broken, and as a result, her personality was harsh, jagged. But it was those features that made her so attractive to him. He liked her pessimism, the fact that she swore more than any boy he had ever met, that she didn't care about what she looked like. It was hard to reconcile the differences between the two girls. How could he like two people who were so different from each other? Love was a mysterious thing, he supposed. So, what do you guys want to do? I snuck some movies out of my dad's study, got the whole Dario Argento Three Mothers trilogy. You pussies up for watching them? Jody said, simpering. Not one to have his masculinity question, Ethan immediately responded. Hell yes. Let's put that shit in. How the hell did you get them out of there? You told us your mom locks that door. Jason inquired. Yeah, but I know where she hides the key. Oh, Helena hasn't figured that out yet. She's too busy spiffing up dining ware, whatever the fucks he does all day. The boys fell silent. There was always an unease when Jody insulted her mother. Usually, insulting mothers was a staple activity of any close-knit group of boys, but they made special exception for Jody's mom. Given her issues, it just seemed wrong. She had always been good to them, a second mother almost. Despite her parental shortcomings, she was kind and accommodating, even baking them cookies while they watched horror movies they were much too young to see. She even occasionally bought them things. Avery remembered her purchasing him a Mothman t-shirt when she and Jody visited family in West Virginia, knowing he was interested in the portent-giving entity. It was ironic, then, that the boys were more protective of the woman than her own daughter. But Jody had her reasons, Avery supposed. How about we go to the Timbers? Avery blurted out. Jody responded. What for? It's not like any of us have the balls to go in there. What's the point? I want to see if anything weird happens. It's the weekend. I'm sure some idiot will go there on a dare or something. Pretty morbid, Ave. You want someone to go in there just so you can see what happens to them? Jason objected. You know what I mean, Jason. Every so often someone doesn't show up for school and everybody says they went into the timbers. Then you find out they either moved out of the city, had the flu, or really did go missing, but no one actually saw them go into the timbers. I just for once want to have some kind of real account of what happens when people go in there. Ethan laughed. <laughs> Christ, look at Atwater, the fucking documentarian over here. Everyone knows the place is fucked. Betty and Sissy saw Patty Rogers go in there last summer and no one's seen her ever since. Greg Myers, Celicia Asnick's mom, Katrina Belwick, how many examples you need, man? Avery rebutted. Katrina Belwick got kicked out of Riverton Elementary and is going to an alternative education school down in Brewerton. And Asnick's mom got admitted to Riverton Psychiatric. Yeah, because of what she saw in the Timbers. Same thing with Maggie, man. They both went loopy after going in there. 
Jody suddenly chimed in. I'm with Avery on this one. A lot of fucking chatter about people going in there and not coming out. But then no one wants to fess up about seeing anything. Bunch of fucking hens clucking if you ask me. Avery couldn't help but smile at Jody's interjection. Her input held weight with the boys, and he knew having her on his side would most likely sway the other two. At least Jason. Ethan would go on account that he couldn't be shown up by a girl, insecurities instilled in him by an overbearing dad. Jody continued. I say we go down there and see what poor sap decides to take the chances in that godforsaken place. Who knows, maybe Trevor Downey and one of his shitheel friends will go in there, kill two birds with one stone. Ethan and Jason shrugged and nodded, begrudgingly going along with the plan. Jody threw Avery a knowing glance and a smirk, pleased with herself. He returned the smile. Their gazes locked for a moment, his emerald eyes floating in the blue seas of hers. It was a place he could get lost, float aimlessly in. He knew she felt the same thing. For a second he thought she might say something, break from that stolid mold of hers and tell him how she felt. But Jody quickly broke the stair and followed her two other friends to the front yard. Avery, stunned by the moment, lagged behind, his eyes still yearning for the drift of those two blue oceans. The four kids hopped on their bikes and rode off. Most of their trip was spent speeding through the nicer parts of suburbia, cardboard cutout homes with cardboard cutout people. But once they hit Lone Lane, the houses wilted into the sunset, eventually dying into thick groves of forestry. Elms and old oaks vied for dominance in the thickets, their intermingling canopies casting a patchwork of shade that blackened the already dim dirt road. Slashes of red wildflower made the brush look bloody, like arterial spray had painted the crabgrass and reeds. The road was eventually eaten by thistle and scrub, forcing the kids to dismount their bikes and push them through the mounting chaparral. They eventually hid them beneath the cover of a particularly weepy willow, its boughs sagging low and sad, providing more than adequate cover for their bicycles. From there, the gang hoofed it through a wilting field living near the back of an old dead farmhouse. Avery often wondered if the place's proximity to the timbers had been what killed it, the haunted place draining the old homestead of its livelihood like some kind of vampire. Avery and the group eventually came upon the narrow dirt path that led to the timbers, walking single file as if following some unspoken protocol. Posted signs started to appear on the necks of the trees, and Avery could see the beginning of the worn, barbed wire fence that poorly protected the property from outsiders. As they got closer, the coppice of white trees that had come to mark the beginning of the timbers came into view. They looked like pale fingers jutting through the dirt, the last flailing grasps of some gigantic corpse reaching up from the ground. In some areas, slabs of moss and lichen-dressed rock rose from the uneven terrain, below which grew families of mushrooms and other saprophytes. Above, the foliage was thick, impenetrable blocking out the sun's last beams and creating an early night to spread across the immediate lands. There was a spirit about the area, but it was elusive, hazy, like the mist that slithered through its pale forestry. Avery wondered if a place could have intention, if the air, the grass, the trees could whisper to one another and conspire. If such a feat was possible, he was sure the timbers could do it. He could almost feel the place smile as they approached. Well, we're here. What do we do now? Avery pointed to the top of the hill to his left. Well, I suppose we should pick a spot up there and wait. Ethan screwed up his face. Man, this is going to be boring as shit. What if no one shows up? We're just going to be sitting here all night with our thumbs up our asses. 
<laughs> Sounds like an average night for you, Ethan. Jody ribbed. Ethan turned red while the rest of them laughed. Avery knew Ethan wasn't fond of being the butt of a joke. But he also knew he wouldn't show he was bothered. That would just invite more pokes. After a moment, a grin eventually replaced Ethan's grimace, and he muttered, Asshole. The four kids trudged up the incline and settled on a giant rock sitting at the top of the hill, conversing. Ethan started things out, recounting a fight he got into earlier with one of his football buddies. It was a typical Ethan story. Even with friends, he felt he had to prove his grit. It made sense, given how much his dad belittled him. In fact, it was an unspoken suspicion that Ethan didn't even like sports, but was just doing it as some misguided attempt to prove he was a real man. Regardless, they let him tell his tales, hoping he got what he needed from them. Shortly after, the two cinephiles, Jody and Jason, had their usual spat. This time it was over the miniseries Rose Red, and if it was one of King's most underrated shows, or simply a ripoff of the lesser-known horror film Burnt Offerings. As usual, the two argued themselves into a stalemate, one refusing to acknowledge the other's points. It was only during one of Avery's lengthy dissertations on the paranormal, a favorite subject matter of his, that Jason suddenly shushed him. Shh! Hey, someone's down there. Avery followed the trajectory of Jason's finger. It was a kid. A boy. He was wearing a pair of ripped bleached jeans and a much too large gray hoodie that hung lazily over his frame. His hair was brown, must, like the wind had its way with it. He looked to be about Avery's age, perhaps a bit younger, if his height was any indicator. There was a slouch to his stature, as if an unseen weight laid across his back and shoulders, pushing him towards the earth. Avery could tell he was scared. It was the way his walk turned into a shuffle as he neared the rusted fence. It was the same way you might approach a haunted house or investigate a noise in the basement, slow and trembling. The boy stopped a few feet from the barbed wire, staring into the pale face of the woods beyond. Jody suddenly whispered, Shit! I think that's Derek Fowler. I recognize the hoodie. What the fuck is he doing? Derek Fowler was one of the most unpopular kids at school. Avery would often see him wandering the halls, his eyes wide and alert, darting, like one of those gazelles grazing on the grasslands of Africa, looking out for predators. To his credit, there always was one, prowling the bathrooms or stalking the schoolyard. It wasn't uncommon to see them mid-feast, shoving Derek into lockers or beating him up during gym while coach wasn't looking. Trevor Downey and his cronies even made him drink toilet water once. But Derek's torment wasn't just physical. Rumors circulated about him on a regular basis. Verbal contagions that spread from one teenage vector to the next. His destruction was thorough. Every aspect of his being skewered via the concerted effort of an unforgiving and hostile ecosystem. Avery often felt bad for not doing more to help him. But like Derek, he was just another grazing animal in the Sahara, always on the lookout for lions. Well, what should we do? The group stood silent for a moment, frozen by indecision. It was true they had come for just this occasion, to witness the folly of anyone who might traverse those dreaded woods. But the callousness of that plan had now taken on water, and the sinking feeling that accompanied it dragged them down to the reality of what that might actually entail. Perhaps the pits in their stomachs wouldn't have been so deep if it was someone else, like Trevor Downey or one of his ilk. But the fact that it was Derek, a person whose daily life was already fraught with horrors, was just too much bad for one person to bear. Avery felt awful for stalling. Moments wherein Derek was the sacrificial lamb for his 
morbid curiosities. Finally, he yelled down the hill, Derek, don't do it! The group instinctively followed suit, hollering for Derek to stay away from the pale wooded place. They started down the hill, dodging the maze of twisted oaks and rocks that embellished the steep incline. As they got closer, Derek's still frame went rigid, poised to run like a deer after hearing the snap of a twig. They were close enough now to see his face, which was a contortion of surprise and fear, his eyes wide like headlights. Before they even reached level ground, Avery knew he was going to bolt. He should have thought things through before he blurted out his name from the top of that rock, known that a gaggle of rushing teenagers, a demographic Derek had just cause not to trust, would spook him. He probably thought they were more of Trevor Downey's cronies, or thugs looking to beat on some stray in the woods. Regardless, Derek was over the fence by the time they reached the edge of the timbers. The group watched as he disappeared between the fingers of the woods, his sprinting shape fading like a ghost. It was like the place had eaten him, the alabaster trees gnashing teeth, the darkness a winding gullet. Even as he was out of sight, they could still hear him, branches cracking and breaking like bones, the forest chewing its new meal. The quiet that followed weighed on the air like radiation from some atomic fallout, the children buckling from its excess, its burning presence. Avery was reminded of the silence that followed his parents' arguments, where space seemed to distort, restrict, and trap him into uncomfortable shapes. It was as if the quiescence was incarnate, crowding the room and causing him to bend and twist like some kind of contortionist. It was the same thing here, and he couldn't help but feel his boundaries dwindling, the hush of the moment squeezing him into yet another ungainly geometry. It was Jason who interrupted the calm, a droplet of water in an otherwise placid lake. What the... what the hell do we do now? A second silence overcame the troop. Avery could feel himself being hemmed in, space constricting again. Well, I... I suppose we... we could follow him, try to... try to bring him back. Avery hesitantly posited. Avery's question hung like a dangling corpse from a noose, his words suspended upon air that smelled of damp moss and fetid tree stumps. No one uttered a response, the question dead and abandoned. They all stood there for a while, their attempts to move burdened by a guilt-induced torpor. Mouths clasped shut, and eyes clung to the carpets of grass at their feet. The group began their journey back to the sad willow hiding their bikes beneath its withered arms. As they went, the day adjourned, and night spread its inky body over the horizon, tiny bonfires aglow within its encompassing void. Not a one of them spoke the whole way back to Jody's. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 